All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 4. That is 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, we're beginning a, a new series called Respectable Sins. Uh, and this morning, my subject will be sin and sin's remedy. Um, and this is a very simple sermon. But to begin, what are respectable sins? Uh, right, it's silly kind of a phrase. What are, what are respectable sins? Well, some sins are really obvious and grievous, right? They're easy to see, and Christians often spend time talking about those kinds of sins, Think of the sins of our culture, right? Sins like homosexuality, atheism, transgenderism, fornication, pornography, drunkenness, drug abuse, Marxism, things like that. Uh, Those are indeed especially vile and clearly seen to be sinful by anyone with an open Bible. And, And again, Christians often spend a lot of time talking about those kinds of sins, but There are other sins that we don't talk much about. They are what author Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. Uh, These are the sins that that we often don't even think about. Sometimes we don't even consider them sins. We just think, well, it's just part of being a person. We don't even think about them as sins, at least not when we compare them to our culture. But we commit them. We commit them thoughtlessly and instinctively sometimes. Or maybe we recognize them as sins, but don't think that they're that big of a deal and therefore are not worthy of much attention. Some of the sins that I want to preach on in this series are ungodliness, anxiety, frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, judgmentalism, anger, and sins of the tongue. I think that you probably get the idea. We are all guilty of everything that I just listed. But when it's time to talk about sin, those are not usually the things that we want to talk about first. That's usually not where we go. Um, They are sins, but we think of them as lesser or normal. And so they are respectable compared to the other ones. You know, we often like to focus on the sins that are out there, but we don't want to focus on the sins in here. That is among the saints. I'll tell you this, it's a lot easier to talk about homosexuality than it is to talk about anger. Because I'm not a homosexual, and I don't struggle with that, but I get angry. It's a lot easier to talk about someone else's sin than your own. Christians, especially those who have been Christians for a while, and have overcome the very noticeable big-ticket item sins, can become numb to the lesser sins that they commit daily and functionally begin to think that they don't really sin that much. And so they focus on the sins of other people or the sins of the culture and never consider their own. Brothers and sisters, it is possible for us to get to a place where we have little sense of personal sin before God. It is very possible to become numb and unaware of your own sin. But know this and remember it. God is not unaware of your sin. All sin is wicked and damnable and God hates it all. So then we need to think about our own respectable sins and how to fight them, how to think about them rightly, and how to keep from them. 
Now, let me be clear before I go any further. I'm not saying that I think everyone in this church is some kind of a self-righteous jerk that thinks he or she does not sin. Some of you might be. I don't think that's everybody. But I think that we are all tempted to be that person. I, I say that because I see it sometimes in myself. And I see it sometimes in others. And I think that, especially in light of how wicked our culture is, it's a real temptation for us to become self-righteous and forget that we need the mercy of God in Jesus Christ just as much as the worst kind of sinner that we can think of. And so I hope that this series keeps us honest and humble and always kneeling at the foot of the cross. And I hope that God will use this series to show us practically how to fight against our sin more strongly than maybe we have been. But for the next two weeks, we will not get into any particular sins. Um, I, I Rather, I want to start broadly instead. So this week, I want us to consider sin and its remedy. And then next week, I want to consider, broadly speaking, how to fight sin in general. So these first two weeks uh, will serve as something of a foundation before we move on to a handful of particular sins. So then, sin. Sin. A lot of people don't like to talk about sin. It's almost like for, for some people, sin doesn't exist. You can hear it in the language of the church, can't you? We've got problems. We've got temptations, struggles. That's my favorite. I struggle with this. Do you? We've got brokenness. We've got mistakes. We've got failures and a whole lot of other things wrong with us. But as a whole, we don't talk about sin. My favorite, I'm really struggling with this. No, what you mean is you're really committing that sin a lot. That's, you, that's usually what that's code for. People don't want to talk about sin. It's like it's vanished, but that's not true at all. It's very much a reality in our lives, and we need to talk about it. And that means that we need to understand what sin really is. And that's the first half of what I'm hoping to accomplish today, is to talk about what is sin. And we also need, second... We need to be reminded how Christ has dealt with it on our behalf. That way we have gratitude in our hearts to begin the fight against sin. So in this sermon, may God give us a view or something of a view of how terrible sin really is. But may he, by his grace, also show us how great is our Savior from sin, the Lord Jesus. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word that lays us bare, shows us what we are, points us to Christ, tells us what we are in him, and guides us in righteousness. Please, God, teach us today by your Holy Spirit working alongside the word. Open our hearts to receive the scriptures. Grant us repentance where we need it, and grant us faith in the Son of God who died for sinners. Grant that we would have a real encounter with you, the living God, as we humble ourselves before your word. Glorify yourself in us today and sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So what is sin? John tells us here, 
sin is lawlessness. To sin is to act, speak, or think as if there is no law. It is lawlessness. To sin is to live as if no commandments have been given. To sin is to refuse to do what you ought and to do what you ought not. Again, sin is lawlessness. Now, if sin is lawlessness, then sin presupposes the existence of law, doesn't it? If it's lawlessness, then that means there must be a law. As Romans 4.15 says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. If there's no law, there's no sin. But since sin does indeed exist, then there is a law that is being violated. Now, what is this law and who has given it? Well, simply, the only one who could have given it has given it. The only lawgiver, God, has given the law. She gets it. God is the sovereign one. God alone has the right to give law to mankind. For God alone owns mankind by, the rights, of, by rights of creation. As the creator of all things, God has the right to impose standards upon his creatures, and he has the right to judge men by those standards. So he can give law, and he can judge men according to that law. He has the right to impose upon his creatures whatever he sees fit, and that's what he's done. He has given us the moral law. That is, he's given mankind commandments. He's given us a standard that he expects us to obey. He gives us a standard law that he expects us to live by. And know this, the law is good. Read Romans 7. The law is good. It is holy, righteous, and good. And that's because, well, how could it be anything else? It proceeds from the God who is holy, righteous, and good. Of course it's good then. The law then, what I'm wanting to highlight real quick, is that the law of God is not some arbitrary list of random rules. That's not what it is. It is an extension of God. It's a revelation of his own holy nature. The law then is moral. It is upright. It is good. And so to violate that law, to be lawless is to be immoral. If the law is holy, righteous, and good, then to violate it is yourself to be unholy, unrighteous, and evil. What is this law, though, this moral law? Well, the summary of it is found in the Ten Commandments. You guys hear this every week. The summary of the law is found in the Ten Commandments. Now, though all of God's moral law is not explicitly stated in these ten laws, nevertheless, these laws do contain God's moral will for all mankind. Now, you can read this, or rather, it will be read to you later. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. But I'll give you something of a summary now. You shall have no other gods but God. Nothing before him. You shall worship God the way that he commands. You shall not take God's name in vain. You must keep God's day holy and give him the worship he deserves. You must honor your father and mother and all authority over you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. That's the law. And each of those commandments function as something of a category or heading that all other, that other commandments fit under. The law is deep. All right, here's an example. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. 
Now, obviously, murder is forbidden here, but so is everything that tends to murder. Well, so just think about it. If murdering is sinful, then it follows that harming another person without just cause would also be sinful because the same principle of hatred is at work. This also means that hatred would be forgiven, for, uh, forbidden. So murder may be the greater sin, but harming others and hating others are also evil. They fit under that category of murder. Another example, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, obviously, saying God in an irreverent way is forbidden, but so is all irreverence toward God. Again, think about it. If using God's name irreverently is sinful, then it follows that making light of anything about God or his word or his will or his ways would also be forbidden. If God's name is not to be taken lightly, then nothing about him is to be taken lightly or irreverently. So making light of God, his word, or his works are all forbidden under the third, third commandment. Flagrant blasphemy might be a greater sin than a stupid joke, but joking about the Lord is sinful. You see how these, they're, they're categories. And by the way, read the catechism. If you don't have a copy, we'll get you one. The catechism expounds on these things. Not, not only does each commandment serve as a category for sin, but each commandment is also two-sided. Right, cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's what God says in Isaiah. Each commandment forbids the opposite of what it commands and commands the opposite of what it forbids. When God says, honor your father and your mother, he is at the same time forbidding dishonoring your parents. When God says, you shall not steal, he is at the same time commanding you to work and pay for your things. When God says you shall not commit adultery, he is at the same time commanding you to be faithful to your spouse or sexually pure if you do not have one. When God says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, he's also commanding us to treat him with the respect that he deserves. Whatever is forbidden, the opposite is commanded. Whatever is commanded, the opposite is forbidden. You can see then, and I haven't even scratched the surface, you should check out the Westminster Larger Catechism. It goes on and on and on about what's forbidden and commanded in each commandment. It's the majority of the catechism. So you can see then that the law is very broad and very deep. The the moral law of God touches everything. Though it's summarized in the Ten Commandments, it goes much further and much deeper than just the surface of those commandments. And everyone knows this law to some degree. Did you know that? Everyone knows the moral law. And I mean everyone. You don't need the Bible to know the law and sin. Though the Bible does make it more clear and explicit. Everyone knows the law. Everyone knows the basics of morality. Everyone knows right from wrong. It's this natural law. And why is that? Why does everyone know the basics of morality? Why does everyone know God's law? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, that is, they don't have the Bible, they don't have the written word, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul says that even though many people don't have the written law, they still have the work of the law written on their hearts. Morality is universal. The law is universal. Everyone knows that God exists. Let me me do the Ten Commandments here. Everyone knows God exists. Everyone knows that He should be worshipped. Everyone knows that he should be worshipped his way, that time must be given to worship him, and that he should be respected. And everyone knows that you should honor your parents and not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not lie, and not want other people's things. Everyone knows these things. Everyone. If they'll sit and think about things for just a moment, everyone knows these things. It's built into our system as human beings. We can't get away from it. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And this then means that all men are accountable to God to obey His commandments. And if they do not, and no one does, then all men are not only accountable, but they are guilty of sin before a holy God. All men know what they should and should not do, and all men sin. And so, all mankind is liable to the judgment of the God who gave the law. So, there is a law. Sin is lawlessness. It presupposes a law. It is broad. It is deep. It is moral. God has given it. Everyone knows it. And everyone is supposed to obey it. And yet, there's also sin. There's also sin. There is lawlessness. There is violation of this law and there are many ways that the god that god's law is violated there are many ways that human beings sin but i want to put them into three categories so again i, I want to talk about what is sin how do you commit sin three ways first there are sins of commission this is the this is the most basic way that we think about sin this is when you do what should not be done this is, like I said, this is usually what you think when you positively commit an act of sin. God says, don't do this, and you do it anyway. By the way, just real quick, none of this is cute. God says, don't do this. The one who made you and owns you, who is holy, says, don't do this, and you do it anyway. This is transgression, the crossing of a line. God has drawn the line, says, don't go over there. And you look at the line and you walk right over it. That's a sin of commission. And then there are sins of omission. This is when you do not do what ought to be done. And this is just as as sinful as a sin of commission. God says, do this, and you say no. No. He says, do this, and you don't do it. He says, worship me, and you don't worship him. He says, do good to others, and you don't do good. He says, forgive, and you refuse to forgive. Sins of omission. You're omitting the obedience that you ought to be rendering to God. You are omitting the good you ought to do. But sin goes even deeper. It's not just about what you physically or verbally do or don't do. We can sin in our thoughts and attitudes. 
God sees everything, including what we think. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus tells us that to be unrighteously angry with someone is the same as murder. To be sinfully angry is to violate the sixth commandment just as much as murder is. Now let's be clear, murder is the more heinous and grievous sin, but Jesus' point is that both hatred and murder violate the commandment. Both are violations. And then he goes on to say the same thing about lust. He says to look upon a woman with lust in your heart is to break the seventh commandment just as much as actually committing adultery. And this, by the way, would apply then to all the commandments, wouldn't it? Jesus just gives the example of the sixth and seventh, I think, because those are the ones that human beings are most prone to. Hatred and lust. But this applies to everything. To desire to steal is sin. To desire what others have and to be discontented with your own with what you have, that is sin. To desire or delight in something above God, though in name, God is your God, you've been baptized into His name, first commandment on the outside, to desire or delight in something more than Him in your, in your heart, breaks the first commandment. To desire, rather to not desire to worship God, is sin. My point is this, to desire to sin is sin itself. It's not just what we do or say, or what we don't do or what we don't say, but it's what we think and how we feel that can also be a violation of God's law. And this goes to positive commandments as well. God commands your heart, not just your actions. Deuteronomy 6.5 one of the most condemning verses in all the Bible. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What does that mean? On the one hand, it's beautiful because that's what we should do. On the other hand, you realize this is a commandment of God that means to not love God with every fiber of your being is to violate the law. Again, sin is not just what we outwardly do. It goes right down into our minds and our hearts. And hear me, we can break God's law in our minds and hearts much easier than we can with our mouths and bodies. There are things that we think and and feel internally that we would never do. And they're just as much sin as doing it. Truly, our catechism is right when it says, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And sin can be committed in thought, word, and deed, and all of it is sin. Now, it almost goes without saying, but it still needs to be said plainly and clearly. You are a sinner. I I don't need to prove this. You know it. You've heard the law of God recited already in this sermon. And if you're honest with yourself for two seconds, you know that you've broken his law. 
You've not always done what he would have you to do. And you've not always kept away from, uh, from what he's commanded you to keep away from. You've often done the opposite. Your own conscience, like Paul talks about in Romans 2, your own conscience condemns you. When you lay down your head at night, you know that you've done wrong. You've done evil and refused to do good. You have sinned in your thoughts and attitudes towards your fellow men and even against God himself. I challenge you, look over or think over, especially as they're read later. Think over the Ten Commandments and just how deep that they really go. I would wager if I sat down with you and helped you to see the law and how deep it is, you have broken every single one of the Ten Commandments in some way. Jesus summarizes the law of God with two statements. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who among us would dare say that they have done that? You have not loved God with all you have, and you have not loved your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You are a sinner. And so am I. We have been lawless. Sin is lawlessness. We have lived without a care for what God demands of us. Again, I say we are sinners. And a quick aside, I have only talked about your actual sins. I have not even talked about at all your original corruption that you inherited from Adam. We're just talking about what you've personally done. We are sinners. And here is the problem. And please, don't tune this out, because I know that most of you have heard this so many times. Don't tune this out. God hates sin. He hates every sin. But that raises a question, I think. Or at least it did for me writing this sermon. Why does God hate sin? Why? The Bible says it all over the place. Right? And listen, if you read the scriptures carefully, it's not just a dislike or a preference against sin that God has. Rather, it is a deep-seated, violent, pure hatred that God has for sin. But what's the big deal? Why does God hate every sin? Why does God hate even the seemingly small sins that we commit? You know, most of us don't think properly about sin. We don't. Most people, I I would bet, most people think of sin as just breaking a rule. Ask 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 a regular, even a Christian, what is sin? It's breaking God's rules. We think about it as just breaking a rule. But that doesn't even really begin to cover it, man. Like, yes, sin is the breaking of God's law, but to break the law of Almighty God is truly a horrible and weighty thing. To think of sin as merely breaking a rule, just, it's not heavy enough. It, it, makes, it almost makes sin out to be a trifling matter. Right, because we set down rules sometimes, and then people break them, and it's not that big of a deal. So if sin is just breaking a rule, then why is God so bad? I've had people not listen to me. But for our holy and just and righteous God to hate sin so much and threaten to damn every sinner to an eternity in hell for sin, there must be more to it than just breaking a rule. Brothers and sisters, when we break God's law, hear me, we are saying and doing things by our actions, thoughts, and words that are much deeper than maybe first appears or occurs to us. 
you're doing more than you think when you sin. But nevertheless, when we sin, again, though it may not occur to us, we are doing something more terrible than we can fully comprehend. And now I want to try to flesh out what sin is uh, in a a more essential way. And I hope that the Lord will use this to give us a feeling sense of the true horror of sin. This is why God hates sin. It is contrary to him. It goes against him. It contradicts him. It denies who he is. It denies his prerogatives as God. It denies his nature. God hates sin because sin is opposed to God. It opposes him in every way. And so those who commit sin oppose God, contradict God, and go against God. I want to flesh this out in in its 11 or 12 ways. First, sin denies God's sovereignty. You ever considered this? To sin is to deny God's right to rule his creatures. God has spoken. God has given law. And when we sin, we are denying God's right to give law and expect us to obey it. By sinning, we are rejecting God's right to govern us. And in so doing, we are, we are functionally attempting to overthrow the king of the universe. As one Puritan put it in a book, I recommend you get it, it's called The Sinfulness of Sin. One Puritan said this, when you sin, you are attempting to un-God God. Sin is an attempt to dethrone the king. It's a rejection of his kingship. When you sin, you are functionally saying, You have no right to tell me how to live or how to think. When you sin, you are telling God, I will do as I please, and your authority means nothing to me. You say, well, that's not what I'm doing when I sin. Then why are you sinning? And how are you not doing that if he's the authority and you're disobeying him? How are you not rejecting his right to rule? Of course you are. Second, sin denies the wisdom of God. To sin is to declare by your actions that God is not wise in laying down a law for you to obey. Because if you thought it was a wise law, you would obey it. In your disobedience, you are claiming to know better than God how you should live, speak, and think. That's what you're saying in your disobedience. I think that I'm wiser than God. Third, Sin denies the all-sufficiency of God. God has said that all pleasure is found in Him and that true life consists in knowing, loving, and obeying God. But when you sin, what are you doing? You're saying that pleasure and fulfillment is actually found outside of God. Because if you actually thought that pleasure and fulfillment was found in knowing and obeying Him, you would have obeyed. But instead, you're saying that your own desires and the world and the pleasures of sin are more fulfilling and pleasurable than God. And that's why you pursue sin instead of pursuing obedience to the Lord. Fourth, sin denies God's omniscience. Those who sin act as if God does not see them. How could it be otherwise? 
Listen, if you truly believe that God sees every action and thought of man, if you truly believe that the Holy One saw you, you would not dare sin in His presence. You know how I know that? If you're in the middle of screaming at your wife and a stranger walks through the door, you'll stop because you don't want to be seen. You don't think God is watching. You're denying His omniscience and His omnipresence when you sin. You're acting as if He does not see, is not there, and will not judge. That leads us into the fifth thing. Sin challenges the justice of God. When you sin, you're acting as if there will be no recompense. You're acting as if there will be no reckoning for what you've just done. If you honestly thought that judgment might fall upon you for sin, you would not sin. But as one Puritan said, in your sin, you dare God to do His worst. And you provoke Him to wrath. When you sin, it's as if you're saying, I know you judge sinners, but I'm not afraid of you, so do your worst. Sixth, sin denies the goodness of God. When you sin, you are in some way believing that the sin is good, even though God says it is evil. And therefore, you must in some way, accuse God of not being good since He is the one who forbade the sin that you think is good. Or when you refuse to obey God and do what He says, you are saying that not obeying His commandment is better than obedience. And that means that God must have not issued a good commandment. But either way, when you sin, you are denying God's goodness. Seventh, Sin turns God's patience into license. When you sin, God is often patient with you, is He not? He is often patient and does not bring judgment down upon you. And in your wickedness, you turn God's patience into an excuse to persist in your sin. Eight, and I've kind of said this already, but sin attempts to deify man. When you sin... You challenge the authority of Almighty God, and in doing so, you attempt to make yourself your own God. Ninth, sin defies the works of God. Our God is a God of order and light and holiness, but sin brings chaos and darkness and unholiness. And when you sin, you are bringing those things into God's world and defying His good work of creation. Tenth, sin denies the will of God. When, you're sin, you, when you sin, you are going against what He has prescribed ought to be done. You are contradicting His revealed will and going another way. Eleventh and last, sin is set against the glory of God. You were created to glorify God by enjoying and obeying Him. But when you sin, you are doing neither. You are neither enjoying nor obeying God. So then to sin, in a sense, robs God of the glory due to Him. Instead of bringing glory to Him, you dishonor Him in your rebellion and lawlessness and unbelief. Do you see now? Do you see? And there's more that could have been said. Do you see something of why sin is so awful? 
Do you see now why God hates it? Now listen, there are many things that we can say about how sin is destructive to mankind and the good of man. But this is the biggest evil of sin. Sin is against God. And so it is detestable to Him. It's an insult to His majesty. It opposes Him and His rule and His reign and His nature. Sin is first and foremost a crime against God. As R.C. Sproul once said, it is cosmic treason against the king. You know, King David understood this. In his psalm of repentance, what's he say? Oh, he had Uriah the Hittite killed. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. But how does he approach it? Against you. You only have I sinned. He knows, rather, he, he, yeah, he's still alive. He's in heaven. He knows that sin is first and foremost against God. Let me dig this a little further. In 2 Samuel, since we're talking about David, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, we read something relevant to our discussion about sin. There, the prophet Nathan is rebuking King David for his sin of killing Uriah the Hittite and taking his wife to bed. And God says through Nathan, God says this to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? So David despised or thought little of God's word when he disobeyed God and broke the sixth and seventh commandments. Fair enough. David thought very little of what God had said. But then God goes on to say, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Why? Not because you despised my word, because you have despised me. Hear this, to despise the word of the Lord, to disregard it, to think little of it, to break it, to go against it, to sin, is to despise God himself. That's what, it's what the Lord tells David. You despised my word later, you despised me when you sinned. No matter how small or how great that you personally may think that the sin that you've committed is, it is all a despising of God, a denial of Him, and a challenge to His majesty and reign. Again, the problem with most people is that they only think about the wickedness of sin with regard to how it harms our fellow human beings, or they think of it in terms as mere, of, of merely breaking a rule, but they never think about it as first and foremost an offense against the holy God who made you. And that, at its core, is actually what makes sin so sinful. It's what makes it so detestable. That's what makes God hate it so much. Do you see the wickedness of sin? Oh, and, and let's not be too broad here. Do you see the wickedness of your sin? We've already covered that you're a sinner. Your conscience condemns you. But whether you realize it at the time or not, this, what I've said and much more, is what you have done and said in your sin. You have offended God himself. So of course, God hates sin. And more than that, he judges and punishes those who sin. Divine justice, God's own nature demands that those who are guilty of sin be punished. Every sin brings about the justice and righteous wrath of God. Hear the word of God now concerning sinners. 
Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, that is sin, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Or Matthew 25, verse 41 and 46, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal punishment. The wrath of God comes upon sinners because of their sin. Sinners stand cursed before God because they have not kept his commandments. And at the judgment of all mankind on the last day, the Son of God will say to sinners, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. God so hates sin that he promises to pour out his wrath and eternally damn sinners in hell. Oh, please. How Think of how horrible. And and eternity. Get that. Please get that. And eternity under the wrath of God is what sinners deserve. No breaks, no escape, no pause, a never-ending punishment. And why? Sin. Sin is why. And surely this must be the case. If sin, is, if sin is indeed all that we've seen so far, and it is, then all sin must deserve damnation. It must. And how horrible damnation is. Eternal fire is the biblical language to describe it. I, I cannot think of a worse thought. Nothing is more terrifying than eternally burning in a body that will not burn up and die. But make no mistake, it is just for God to do so. For sin is an offense against the eternal, infinite, all-good, all-lovely, all-pure, holy God. And catch this. It is not just the big sins that deserve damnation. All, we, we have to see this. It is all sin. That's what every sin deserves. Not just murder, not just rape, not just child molestation or adultery or genocide, not just abortion, not just drug dealing, but every single sin deserves damnation, even what we call small sins. Let me put this to you. Is there any such thing as a small sin if all sin is contrary to God and an insult to His majesty? Is there any such thing as a small way of doing that? No! That's because all sin, whether you think it is great or small, is against Him. Just real quick, let me, let, me, let me say a few of these. Losing your temper, damnation. Hating someone in your heart, damnation. Lusting in your heart, damnation. Greediness, irreverence toward God, imperfect worship, Sabbath breaking, unforgiveness, pride, unkind words, unthankfulness damnation it's all equally damnable in his eyes for it's all against him you have sinned enough in one sin to condemn you forever do you see what you deserve if you don't believe that you deserve to go to hell for your sins then there is no hope for you because you're blind and you're hardened against the lord 
That if you see what you deserve from God, then there is hope for you. And that's what I want to declare to you now. So here's our problem. We've sinned against God. Damnation hangs against us. We are cursed by God. We have offended him. What are we to do? Some would say, I'll start doing better right now. Well, guess what? You can't undo your past sins, can you? You can't turn back the clock and change them. Even if you never sinned again, I was just telling someone this this past week in my office, even if you never sinned again, good luck. But even if you somehow did that, you still have sin on your record before the unchanging God who never forgets. What are you supposed to do? You are objectively guilty. There is nothing we can do. And hear me. Don't ever forget this. Someone must pay. I was telling my family this at a gathering last night. Someone must pay for sin. God demands it. Please hear me. I know you've heard these things before. Let them hit you in a fresh way this morning by God's grace. Someone will pay. God will not wink at sin. He will not look the other way. He will not give you a pass for your sin because you're sorry. You know, a lot of people think that. Ask someone on the street who who knows that they're a sinner. Will God forgive you? Well, I'm sorry for what I did. Well, what does that have to do with anything? There are a lot of people in prison who are sorry for what they've done. They should still be there. You think saying you're sorry is going to undo what you've done against the Lord? He will not pat you on the back and say, Oh, it's okay. I'll act like it didn't happen because you're sorry. No. That would be unjust and wicked of God to forgive you just because you're sorry. That would be a denial of his own holiness and justice. And he has spoken in his word, 2 Timothy 2.13, he cannot deny himself. Justice must be served. God will get justice. His law has been broken and he is the God of justice. Every act or thought of lawlessness must be accounted for and paid for. Every one of them. And if we pay, we will be damned eternally under the white hot wrath of God. But, but, here is the remedy for sin. But God, because he is so kind and full of grace and mercy towards sinners, because in some way that we will never understand, he loves sinners. Because he is so good, he has chosen to make a way of salvation for those who have offended and sinned against him so grievously. If we pay for our sins, we go to hell forever. But he desired to save a people for himself in spite of us. In spite of our sin. And so he decided that he himself would take on flesh. That the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, would become a man, a true human being, in order to pay for what sinful men have done. And the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, came to earth in order to pay for our sin in our place. Romans 3.25 says that God put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. What a blessed word. Propitiation. To propitiate is to satisfy wrath. 
God set forth His only begotten Son on the cross to suffer and die, and in doing so, be the wrath satisfier for those who believe on Him. Oh, hear the good news. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, was punished as if He Himself had personally committed your sins. Think on that. Glory of glories. He himself was punished as if he had done what you have done. All of your hatred, malice, selfishness, sinful speech, ungodliness, unthankfulness, atheism, fornication, adultery, drunkenness, drug abuse, pornography viewing, ignoring the poor, unbelief, blasphemy, arrogance, discontentedness, pride, anger, self-righteousness, false religion. If you can think of it, if you've done it, he suffered for it. What a blessed truth. If you have done it, he suffered for it. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore his sins, or rather bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus Christ took the guilt for all of the sin of all who would ever believe on him. And at the cross where he bled and died, God treated Jesus as if he were the sinner. And the perfect man, the spotless Lamb of God, offered himself up to the divine justice and judgment of God in the room and stead of sinners, in place of sinners. He bore the weight and penalty of divine justice at the cross. Invisible to the eye, but nonetheless real, he suffered the very wrath of God in place of sinners. And the divine nature, being united to the human nature in the one person of Christ, made the sacrifice of infinite value to take away the sins of all who would ever believe. Though sinful man has a monstrous debt before God, the value of the sacrifice of the Son of God is worth more than all the sins of sinful men put together. And so a full atonement, a full payment was made for all who have ever or would ever believe on Christ. And this work that Christ has offered is received by faith. By trusting that he has done enough to pay for and take away your sins. It's always been, it's been famously said, Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. He paid it all. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All who trust in him receive the benefits of his work and receive the forgiveness of sins. And why? Because he paid for them for you. As he said on the cross, it is finished. It is done. The transaction is over. You had a debt before God because of your sin, or rather he owed you damnation for your sin, but Jesus Christ has paid justice for you. He suffered in your place. And now in him, by faith in him, the justice has been served and we go free, having been forgiven by God because Christ, God in Christ has settled our accounts for us. The wrath that should have fallen on us has fallen on him. And so we go free and saved from the hell that we so richly deserve. As Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way. We are lawless. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And through Christ, we have peace with God now. We are no longer his enemies. We are no longer counted as guilty rebels, but rather by faith in Christ, we have peace with God and are counted as his children. No more hostility, no more judgment, no more condemnation. God is now our God and we have fellowship with him. Having put our sins on Christ, God has made it to where we can now know him and are set in a right relationship to him. We have sinned. We need a remedy. And in Jesus Christ, God himself has provided the remedy for our sins. So then, brothers and sisters, see your sin rightly, please. It is no light thing. It is not a trifle. It's not just breaking a rule. It is lawlessness against the holy God. And it is so horrible that only the death of the Son of God could take it away. And I bring this up this morning to say this. We will never properly deal with sin remaining in our lives until we estimate it rightly. So see it for what it is. It is vile. It is a killer. It is a damnable thing. See it rightly. See what it costs. And hate it for what it is. All but look to Jesus. Look to Him. He is the Savior. He is the one who has taken away your sins if you trust in Him. He's the one who has reconciled you to the God you've sinned against. He's the one who satisfied the wrath of God. He's the one who has worked salvation for you. He is the one who by His blood has brought you near to God. He is the one who has turned you from a child of wrath into a child of God. Don't ever forget to look to Christ who saves you. So think on these things. Think on them daily. It's not just for the new believer or for the unbeliever to think on. It's for all of us. You need to meditate on these truths if you're ever to grow in the Christian life. If you're ever to kill the sin that remains in you. If you're ever to fight your respectable sins, you must keep these things before you. And know this. God is no longer your enemy, but He is your Father. He no longer condemns you. He tells us to be holy, but not to save ourselves, rather because we have been saved by Christ. So I want to say this as we we begin to try to maybe more self-consciously deal with our sins. God doesn't look at you, Christian. He doesn't look at you and say, get it together, stop sinning or else. He doesn't say that. Rather, he says, my son has died for you. I have already provided an atonement for your sins. You do need to deal with those sins, but I'm your father. Now let's deal with them together. This should encourage you to fight your sin. Knowing that you are not under wrath, but under grace, ignites a fire in your heart to kill sin and strive for holiness. I want you to think on these things because it'll put gratitude in your heart. Listen, it is your duty to kill sin, but duty without desire is drudgery. It's always your duty, but without desire it will turn into drudgery. But remembering the love of God towards you, that He's shown you in Christ taking His wrath in your place, all that will put gratitude in your heart. That will put desire in your heart to deal with your sin.
And how could it not? So think on these things. See the wickedness of sin. See the love of God for you in Christ. And be motivated to kill your sin. May God help us to do these things. Amen. Let's pray. God, as I've said a lot today, please give us a sight of our sin. Show us what it is. I've spoken words to the ears, but only you can speak them to hearts. So Lord, I pray you would do so. But God, please do not leave us with just a sight of sin, for that will kill us. But let us see Jesus, the propitiation for our sins. That we might glory in him and rejoice in him. And that we might know that we are yours through him. Have mercy on us and show us these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.